So good morning, and uh, good to see you all here today. And uh, I want to invite uh, Kevin and Tanya to come up at this point. And uh, Kevin and Tanya uh, are visiting this weekend, and will be uh, addressing us this evening at 6.30. Those of you that are able to come out, we have pie and ice cream all lined up, and uh, good things to look forward to there. Uh, and then an opportunity to hear about your ministry. So welcome, welcome back. It's been a few years now, and uh, not everybody here knows you. So uh, perhaps you could introduce yourselves and tell us what you're about uh, and why you're tied in with us at Granville Chapel. Well, good morning. Um, I am Kevin. This is Tanya Van Horn. We had the pr privilege of uh, coming to Vancouver and studying at Regent College for four years. Um, we had met on the missions field in Russia, and that was our trajectory, was overseas cross-cultural missions. Um, we got out of Vancouver in six years with three degrees, two children, and a love for Granville Chapel. <laughs> um, and we're fortunate that this chapel has partnered with us in the missions and the ministries that God has called us to since then. Currently, we work for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship in the United States. We actually mobilize, train, and send staff to work around the world with the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students. I supervise all of our staff that go to the former Soviet countries to serve, and my wife, um, her job is a little smaller than mine. She oversees our staff in Africa and the Middle East. <laughs> um, so that's what we do on a daily basis. It's a lot of communicating with young people who are looking for where God might be calling them. It's a lot of communicating with our staff who are on the field, helping them navigate uh, their cross-cultural adjustment and the ministry challenges that they face, and also working with uh, our brothers and sisters around the world to try to open new doors for partnership where we can come alongside and work with them. Awesome, that's, uh, that's great to hear. Tanya. Uh, Africa? Uh, do you get over there often? And, and, and what's going on in Africa that we ought to be excited about? Um, I think one of the things that has been, um, I've been, we've been schooled in over the last 25 years is the, the, the power and the growth um, of the global church, particularly the global south. Um, uh, God is uh, sending people from everywhere to everywhere. I think here in Vancouver that is very obvious and, and part of your daily lives. Um, but there are uh, many opportunities and, and invitations uh, across uh, Africa um, for, um, for us to join uh, the work that God is doing. Uh, one of the most exciting things that's happened in the last year is that um, I had the joy of um, being able to uh, um, respond to an opportunity and invitation that came from the Gambia to send a professor to work at the university and to work with students. And um, the story of how that all came about is amazing. And, um, and tonight, come on out and <laughs> you could hear. There you go. Well, you've whetted our appetite for what should be a good evening this evening. And, uh, you know, frankly, I love this kind of global reach, right, that, uh, that we're able to partner with stuff that God is doing in far-flung corners of the globe and yes, we're here in Vancouver, but God is not limited to this, right? And we have the, the privilege of partnership and uh, holding the ropes together as, uh, as God does his thing. And we cheer him on and uh, we're going to hear good stories about what he's about. So lovely to have you back. Can I just pray for you right now and uh, pray blessing on this time that you'd be refreshed and renewed and uh, that God would look after you and look after these great regions of the world that you were caring for. So... 
Father God, thank you so much for Kevin and Tanya. Thank you for their faithfulness to your call on their lives. And uh, thank you for all that you are doing and will be doing uh, through these various young people that they're releasing into ministry uh, in odd corners of the globe from uh, uh, former Soviet Union uh, places to Africa and the Middle East. Uh, Lord, uh, thank you for your global reach. And we just pray your blessing on them. And we pray, Lord, that this evening uh, would be a good time of uh, finding out more uh, and of encouraging them uh, in their ministry as they continue to serve you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you both. Mm -hmm. Good. So, uh, we are continuing uh, here at Granville in our credo teaching series uh, through the Apostles' Creed. Uh, as you know, the Creed is an ancient document that was put together very early in the life of the church to help identify the core of what it is that Christians believe. And over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the first part of the Creed. Uh, that's the piece about the Father. We then looked at the piece about Jesus Christ, His only Son, that chunk, and then uh, we looked last week at I believe in the Holy Spirit. Obviously, that's the Trinity uh, fully covered there. And now we're moving on in these next few weeks to look at the, the rest of these uh, creedal statements uh, that uh, were initially, I think, used uh, and are still used in, in some uh, denominations today as a teaching tool, uh, particularly for those who are preparing for baptism. Uh, like people coming into the faith need to know, well, what is it Christians believe? Well, here is a pretty good summary, and uh, we're teaching our way through it, uh, trying to understand it, trying to get a sense of what it has for us and how we are supposed to relate to this. So, uh, this morning we come to the particular phrase, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints. Well, there's an issue here, right? So let's tackle it head on. Uh, the word Catholic, okay, Catholic with a little c, means including a wide variety of things, all embracing, okay, got that? And then the word Catholic with a capital C is generally used to denote the Roman Catholic Church. Now, in churches like our own, which come out of a strong Protestant tradition, uh, there has often been a sense of almost shock and horror whenever the creed is read, because a lot of people want to jump up and say, I am not Catholic. And they mean with a capital C, right? But here's the deal. Although... When the creed was written, the word Catholic could probably have gone either way because in that early stage of the church, the church had an essential unity that included, before the big split uh, between the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church, it was the church, right? So Catholic at that time really stood for either way. These days, as the church has historically developed 
And as there have been divisions and conflicts and questions, now we look at the church and we know that the church includes the Orthodox Church, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, the Protestant Church, the Pentecostal Church. Whenever Christians say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, we're really saying, little c, Catholic, the all-embracing the amazing reality of God at work in His world through all these streams that together, grounded in Jesus Christ, represent His church in the world. How did I do? Clear as mud? Uh, Or clarified and reassured uh, that when we speak about Catholic, we are not saying we are Uh, in uh, a line of authority below the Pope, but we are saying that we are part of God's church in the world. Okay, having got that one out of the way and hopefully dealt with it, we can now come to think more about the reality of the church. What do we actually believe about the church? And to answer that, we need to turn to the Bible to see what the first Christian disciples believed about the church as the starting point and actually the place of authority. I mean, the Apostles' Creed has no essential authority in and of itself. It's only what derives from the Scripture that it's based on. And as we've seen in previous weeks, the Creed is basically lifted out of Scripture. And uh, hopefully you're going to see today uh, that that's true too. So, our passage today, which we had read earlier, thank you, Octavio, uh, was uh, Ephesians 2, where Paul is addressing primarily Gentile, Gentile meaning non-Jewish believers. Now, they've come to faith in Christ, and his letter in Ephesians is really a great statement about the church and what it means to belong uh, to Jesus. And he has this to say, Consequently, he says, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people. So let's just stop and have a look at that phrase for a moment, because uh, there's some good stuff in here. As uh, Paul had uh, been addressing these Christians earlier in chapter 2, he had told them about their life before they encountered Jesus. And he has this to say earlier in chapter 2. He says, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. This is the state of people who've had no encounter with Jesus Christ. Don't know who He is, don't know what He's about, They're kind of out there doing their own thing in the world. It's not a very pretty picture, actually. Uh, It's kind of cut off, excluded outside. But as a result of their belief and trust in Jesus, their old lack of status has been completely transformed. Many of us here in this room today uh, were not born in Canada. But after filling in the forms and after paying the fees, oh, those fees, uh, we 
we have been granted citizenship in this great land. That's what happened to me. I came over from Britain. I had my UK passport. I was a British citizen. I still am, technically. But I came to Canada, and then I did what I needed to do, and I am now a Canadian citizen. And the government of Canada is kind. It doesn't look on me as a second-class Canadian citizen. Because I have that little citizenship card, I am looked at the same as people, some of you, who were born here in Canada and have always been able to say, well, I'm a citizen. We're all in it together. And so citizenship then, as Paul is looking at it, he's saying there was this thing that God was doing in the world. It was, he chose out his people, the people of Israel, and he called them his, his chosen people. And he had a covenant with them. And they existed. And his goal was actually to bless the nations through them, right? You remember he told Abraham that way back. But he formed them as a community. And if you didn't happen to be born in Israel, you were kind of out of luck, right? Tough. You're not a citizenship. You're not a citizen of Israel. But Paul is saying, actually, the key thing is not citizenship in Israel. The key thing is citizenship in God's great work. And now, because of what Jesus has done, all you Gentiles, non-Jewish people who were born outside of Israel, get included. You are now given citizenship. You belong. So the first picture that we actually get in this little passage of Ephesians that we're looking at of the church is a united citizenship, a big movement of people who are brought together as citizens of God's community. But Paul has more. They're not just citizens, they're also members of God's household. And this, too, is a significant change of status. In the Roman world, a household included the nuclear family, mom, dad, kids, that was the general picture, but it also included the servants and the slaves. And if you were part of a household, you gained protection and support by being part of that. In chapter 1 of Ephesians, Paul tells these Ephesian Christians that in love, God predestined us to be adopted as his sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. This is actually better than being slaves or servants pulled into God's household, but in a lesser status. Through the work of Jesus, all of us who were outside and far away have been brought close, made citizens, but not just made citizens, brought into the family. God looks at us and says, you are my daughter. You are my son. Wow! This is a change of status. This is amazing. And so another picture that Paul is laying out for us right here is not just change of status to citizenship, but change of status to family. 
So the church then is the family of God. We have family relationship with God the Father. Jesus is not only our Lord, He's our brother. And this is amazing, an amazing thing that God has done and leads us or should lead us to a very high view of what it means to be the church. But even these two images of what church is about are not the end of Paul's story here because he goes on, the household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone and then in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And here he shifts his imagery from citizenship and on to family and now he's moving it on to an image of a building. And it's not just any building. It's a building that is founded on the prophets, and I think this phrase, he's looking back to the Old Testament, and there's all those Old Testament prophets who wrote about what God was going to do. They were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, and sure enough, the Messiah came. And Paul is saying here, those prophets were foundational to the reality of the church. We're, we're actually all of a part with what God has been doing all along. He has been building this for a while and, and deep in the foundations are those prophets who were looking forward. And then we've got the apostles. The apostles were the first witnesses uh, to Jesus' presence, to His death and to His resurrection. And they were the ones called on to announce to the world, you know what? Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one that God has sent. He is the answer to the prophetic promises uh, we have in the Old Testament. He is the one. And so the apostles have a role in this construction that God is doing. But the key thing in this building is the cornerstone. Now, the cornerstone on a building is really important. It's cut really sharply. The angles have to be right because from the cornerstone, the walls will take their direction. Some of you are involved in architecture and construction and you know it's really, really important. And some of you have tried, as you've uh, tried uh, home renovations, uh, to uh, sort out walls that have been put in that weren't true. And you're left with these funny angles when you get to the corners and you go, what happened here? Because it just doesn't quite work because somebody did a shabby job and they didn't get their angles right at the base. Jesus is the cornerstone from whom the whole building takes its trueness. So Jesus is absolutely foundational to this building that is coming together. Some of Europe's ancient cathedrals took hundreds of years to build. And we've got a picture here uh, of one of them. This is uh, the uh, cathedral in Chartres in France. It's an absolutely beautiful building. Uh, there's all kinds of architectural features. Some of you are architects here and you know about flying buttresses and you know about the glory 
uh, of some of these amazing constructions. They took hundreds of years to put together. But you know what? Something even as impressive as that is just a shadow. It's just a foretaste of what God is actually doing in the temple that He is building. And Paul is saying, the temple of God is being constructed on the foundation of the prophets, the apostles, the cornerstone of Jesus, and we are all being included in it. And He is doing something truly amazing here. The temple is a very interesting uh, subject to look at as you, as you read Scripture. And uh, there are much brighter people than me who've traced out all the imagery of the temple. But we know that in the Old Testament, uh, after they had settled the land of Israel, uh, the Israelites uh, established Jerusalem as the, the center of kingship, and then David had this idea, I want to build a temple. And God came to him and said, actually, it's not your job. There's too much blood on your hands. I want your son Solomon to build it. And remember that all that uh, construction that went in to build that amazing temple. And it was a place of glory, but it was a place of teaching. It was a place to teach them about the holiness of God. And you remember one of the high points of the Old Testament is on the moment the temple gets inaugurated. And in that moment, they do all the sacrifices, they set it up properly, they kind of obey God in the construction and in all the preparations. And there's a moment when the glory of God descends on the temple. And the goal was that that would be the place where God would meet His people. And that the temple would then be the sign of His presence and the actuality of His presence. They could go there to meet Him and encounter him because he was there. Well, unfortunately, that story didn't end well. The Israelite people struggled to live with a holy God. And eventually, as he had warned them, if they didn't live up to his call on their lives, uh, he would let things go. And he did let things go. And eventually, the Babylonians came in, wrecked the temple, tore it down, blew it away, and the people of Israel went into, Israel, uh, uh, went into exile uh, in Babylon uh, for a 70-year period, and the, the temple lay in ruins. They came back, they had another shot, but it was never quite the same. And it was actually in 70 AD that the Romans blew away Herod's temple and, and crushed it, and now that there is no temple uh, in Jerusalem. But... The temple is not done. The temple is not done because God had a bigger, better plan for temple. And here's Paul explaining to us what it was. The temple is this building that God is doing that is not made with hands, but now includes all who are followers of Jesus. And we are included in the temple. We're being built together and we are being constructed into a temple that stretches around the world. We've been, as we spoke to the Van Horns earlier, there's this global reach of the church these days. It's on all over. God is doing His thing. And the church is now this mobile connection 
of human people in which God dwells by His Spirit, and we are the church. And God is present to people everywhere. It's now not a question of a pilgrimage to some holy site where God is. Because in what God has schemed up, the, ch- the temple goes to the people. And wherever people are, they can encounter the presence of the Holy Spirit in His people being the church. It's amazing. These are just three little verses. But, but think of the richness of the imagery that we have looked at together. Citizens, family, temple. And I don't have time this morning to pick up two of the other major images of the New Testament. One image is the body of Christ. What is the church? It's the body of Christ. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, actually, there's Jesus is the head, but we're actually all His arms and feet. We all have uh, a function within the body. It's not that some are better than others, but we're all different. We, all the pieces need to work together, and we are Jesus to the world as we go about. It's a kind of extension of the temple image at some level, but it's a living, dynamic reality. The church needing each other, uh, needing the gifts that God has given to each of us, and working out His purposes in our world. It's another big image, and perhaps the best image of all, uh, which comes late in Revelation, uh, is the picture of the church as the bride, the bride of Christ, being prepared for Jesus. And marriage then becomes this imagery of unity, of love, uh, of connection, uh, of hope, uh, as the church worldwide is being prepared for our husband, Jesus himself. And that's the imagery that Revelation concludes with. So I hope you can see that when we say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, we're actually saying something that is rich and deep and grounded in all kinds of biblical imagery and shows us that the church is a pretty amazing place. So if that is the scriptural basis for our belief in the church, what then are we to make of the next phrase, the communion of the saints? Now, here's another bit of explanation. This phrase does not refer to Holy Communion or what we would usually term the Lord's Supper. It is rather the concept of the ongoing fellowship of the whole church worldwide. Catholic theologians uh, have a term uh, for the church in the world, and they call it the church militant. That is, the church at war. Christians in the church on the ground, boots on the ground, here in the world, are the church militant. But the church of people that have died, those who have died being followers of Jesus, are the church triumphant. They have run their race, they have 
fulfilled their work down here, they fought their battles, they fought the good fight, and now they are in the presence of Jesus. And the communion of saints then becomes uh, the sense that we are all in this. So that the church is the church through time and into eternity. So when we think of those who have gone ahead, we celebrated the lives of Ruth Cummings, Ralph Bagshaw. They're not with us anymore. They're not part of the church militant. They're part of the church triumphant. They're with Jesus. But they're removed from us, but they're still part of the big picture. Because of the resurrection, life goes on. And God's kingdom purposes go on. For Martin Luther, who was never one to beat around the bush, the phrase, the communion of saints, is of one piece with the preceding phrase, the Holy Catholic Church. He says, it's basically the same thing. When we say, I believe in the church, because of this wide understanding of what the church is, militant and triumphant, when we speak of the communion of saints, we're basically saying, the church, the church, it's the church. So the whole point here is, don't sweat the phrase, the communion of saints. We're not saying anything totally uh, against uh, our understanding. It is just a, a, a expansion, if you like, uh, of what our understanding of church should be. And obviously, our understanding of church comes from this big picture that Paul presents for us uh, and John presents for us, particularly in Revelation, with his windows into heaven and that great throne uh, and the, all the crowd waiting before the throne, uh, the, the, the saints who have died and gone before. So, don't worry about the communion of saints. It means the church. We believe in the church. We've just seen that and all that rich imagery. Okay. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the community of saints. Where then does this leave us this morning? Well, Christian teaching about the church, as you have heard, is exalted. This is rich, deep stuff. Why then is the reality experienced by ordinary Christians in their local churches often so different. The truth is that many people have been burned by the church in its many expressions. Some of you read the newspapers or look at it, the internet. You saw uh, the report yesterday on Lash Community. Uh, and uh, this revelation about Jean Vanier sexually abusing women over decades. So sad, but hardly unusual, right? I mean, many of us just like, what? Really? And there's even another story today that you can go and have a look at, at uh, about a missions context uh, where it seems like there's corruption been going on and lots of people have been burned. And these are, just, <laughs> these are just the recent ones, right? I mean, <laughs> there is a whole line of this. Uh, and there are churches that have so disappointed so many. Maybe you were in one. 
Maybe you're part of a community that got really toxic. Maybe you're part of a community where the pastors did stuff that hurt people and let people down and broke down. And so what is this tension then between the big picture, the beauty of the church, and then this reality of the church, which leaves people burned and broken, and how are we to deal with it? Well, and, and, and probably it's worth saying that uh, there are people who have been burned by this particular church, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of nice for us this morning to go, because well, we're, we're Granville Chapel, but uh, sort of out there, the church can do nasty things to people. But let's, let's be honest, right? People have been burned by Granville Chapel. Uh, and that's really sad. And that's never the intention, right? But it happens. So, so how then are we to actually make sense of church given all that brutal reality out there? Well, churches, as I keep reminding us, are made up of broken people that God is in the process of repairing. And that brokenness extends from those like me who lead to all who attend. We, we can't actually absolve ourselves from this undercurrent of brokenness that is there within us. So when we come to church, to think about church, we need to come with a deep humility. Right? The church is a community of the broken that God is saving from their brokenness and healing and restoring. It's just that it takes longer and is a slower process than we could all want. So that humility should mean that as we come to think about the church, we must remember that God loves the church and calls us all to be part of it. I mean, we know that on any given Sunday morning, there's a whole bunch of people walking around False Creek and uh, English Bay uh, and on the beach, and they will tell you, well, I'm doing church. Right? And their concept is really a kind of spiritual thing that doesn't really involve anyone else. It's me and God, uh, and I'm I'm doing church. But, but let's be clear, the New Testament won't let us get off with that as church. The church, as we've seen, is this community thing that God is building. And, and we're instructed not to stop meeting together, even though meeting together can be painful, right? Because we're broken people. So, Opting out is not an option. We're supposed to opt in. And how then do we work church? Well, I think the first thing we're called to be is really thankful when the church, or our local expression of it, gets anywhere close to being what it's supposed to be. And what is it supposed to be? It's supposed to be a gracious, welcoming place for all who struggle, a context in which to worship, to pray, and to encounter God together, and a platform from which we are sent out together to bless those who are our neighbors, friends, and colleagues. 
we should be deeply, deeply thankful if our community here ever gets close to that ideal. And, and, and to be aware that it's unusual, sadly, that it's unusual for the church to actually live up to its calling. But when it does, let's be thankful. Thank you, Lord, that this is a place where my brokenness is accepted, when the brokenness of others is accepted, when Andy's brokenness is accepted, and together we glimpse Jesus. That's good. We should be cheering. What happens when struggle comes? When we encounter the ugly, dark side, broken parts of our brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, here's the thing. Rather than despairing and giving up on the whole project of church, I think it's at that point that we are called to see these as opportunities for growing deeper. Deeper into relationship with Jesus, deeper into relationship with, yes, these broken people that God has put us up against. I sometimes get involved in uh, talking to young people who are planning to get married. There's nothing quite so lovely as people who are preparing to get married. They think it's going to be fantastic. They think it's going to be wonderful. They've, they've often grown up in families where they've been loved and cared for, and they think, wow, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. But, you know, it's really easy to be yourself in a context where your parents love you and all that kind of stuff, or where you're living on your own, and reality hits when you actually move in with your husband or wife and discover to your shock and horror that this wonderful person that you just married snores, <laughs> doesn't clean up in the kitchen, is selfish, and is shockingly real. Now, I haven't actually had anyone come back and say, hey, what, what's going on, Andy? I mean, what, is, is this what we signed up for? But that is what you signed up for. Because God is not going to form you into the person of Jesus and shape you without a little bit of friction. And that's where it's going to come. Right? Those of you who are married here know exactly what I'm talking about, I hope. And in the same way, to be called to be church, we are called in to rub up against each other. And you know what? We discover that people are different. We are not the same. My sense of humor is not your sense of humor. Gets me in trouble on, on occasion. Okay, yeah, talk to me about that. But hey, we'll find difference wherever we are, but the calling to be church remains the same. We are called to learn and grow and love and work through this stuff. As we do that, we become the community that God has called us to be. One last point. That's about us being us at Granville. What about all these other churches out there? 
We are called as followers of Jesus to live out grace. And if this morning we are standing here affirming the reality of the church in all its Catholic reality, its all-embracing reality, then we actually need to learn how to talk to people from other traditions than our own without a sense of huge superiority uh, or a sense that they are somehow second class. Some of you remember the wonderful evening we had a few years back as we were preparing to bring in uh, our Syrian-Armenian refugee family. And uh, we didn't really know much about Armenians, and so we went to the Armenian church here in uh, Vancouver, and Father Gregorian came, as, as well as some people from the, uh, the Armenian church in, uh, in Richmond. And uh, we had a fantastic evening. We asked lots of questions. You know, what do Armenian people eat? What's the history of Armenia? We discovered that Armenia is the earliest Christian kingdom. Uh, it was a very interesting evening. And towards the end, uh, somebody, I forget who it was, asked a question and said, so, Father Gregorian, you come from an Armenian Orthodox church. And he was dressed in a black cassock with a cross around his neck, and, and he was standing up there. And, and, uh, and, and the question was asked, well, you're Armenian Orthodox, and we're Evangelical Protestant. So, what... what it, can you speak to that? And I, I fully remember Father Gregorian just standing up there just by the, uh, the uh, um, fireplace over there. And, and he just stood up and he just smiled. And he said, well, he said, we believe that Jesus died for our sins. And then he just smiled. And it was like, you know what, let's, let's, just, let's just go with that, right? Let's just go with that. What we have together is actually much more important than all the things that divide us. We can focus on the division, yeah, that's not going to help us. Back in the 16th century, there was a chap called uh, Meldinius, I think. I think there's a slide there. Uh, this is the one. This is what he said. In essentials unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. It's not the last word on how we relate to people of other churches, but it's a word. In essentials, unity, well, do we believe in Jesus? Do we believe He died for our sins? Yes, we do. Well, we've got a starting point. Sounds like we're part of the big family of God, even if we don't understand all the history and all the pieces where you come from. In non-essentials, liberty. Okay, so you baptize infants, and we dedicate infants. Are we going to let that be the point that divides us and makes us uh, an armed camp against you? I don't think. Let's just ride with that. Is Jesus being exalted? Could there be differences? Yes, there could. It's important to know why we, why we do what we do. 
But it's not important for us to think that what we do is the only way to do it, right? And then in all things, charity. Well, what if, what if Jesus loves those people? And if they are part of his big picture of church? Well, we're going to spend eternity together. So could we maybe spend a little time working on figuring out how to love these people and figure out who they are and how they are and how the life of Jesus is at work in them. We might learn something. So in all things, charity. Hey, there's my shot at church. It's a big picture. It's a wonderful picture. We are called to be God's community here in our world. It's a great thing. We're loved. We're family. We're a temple. We're a citizenship. We're together in this, broken as we are. May Jesus help us be the community he wants us to be, a community of hope and faith where healing and his presence is made real. We're going to go into a, another worship session right now, and it's an opportunity for our uh, prayer ministry people to come and to minister some of you this morning have been hurt in churches, and those wounds are deep. Maybe some of you have been hurt in this church. The enemy would love those wounds to keep you from fully entering the life of community. Jesus wants to bring healing and grace into your life over those places where you've been wounded. So why not this morning? There's plenty of other things you can come and be prayed for, for but if, if that's you, why not come up and allow the body of Christ here to minister to you in a place of pain uh, and I'll ask for the healing of Jesus to be made real in that place of pain for you. Let's pray together as I wrap this. Father God, thank you so much for this calling to be the church. Lord, it's a tricky thing to represent you and to be your people. But we know, Lord, that you are present here by your Spirit and that you are at work and have been at work over the years in this place. Lord, forgive us for when we've been the church that has caused pain and has left people with wounds that have meant that they felt they've had to run from this place. Lord, we repent of that. And we pray your blessing on them and, the, and your healing on them, whoever they are, wherever they are today. And we pray, Lord, that you would make us a place of welcome and witness and uh, awareness of your presence, uh, that people would come in here and encounter Jesus and get a fresh glimpse of who he is. For we pray in Jesus' name.